enthusiasm. We are going to be digging into the book of Matthew today. So I would invite you to take the Bible, and if you have your own Bible or if you need one in the pew rack, take that one. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, through chapter 7, verse 12. If you are using the Bible in the pew rack, you can find that on page 811. We're going to be hearing God's voice as we speak. This is God's word. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 6, 25 through 7, 12. And Jesus said, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. For which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, Whatever you wish for other, that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, we come before you. Uh, we've just sung, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour. And even gathering in this room is, is a reflection of our need for you. We need to hear your voice this morning. I need your strength to 
to hear it myself and to preach it, preach your word well. So I, I pray that you would minister to us by your spirit as we dig into this passage. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we have a beloved passage in front of us this morning. It has what I probably would say is my favorite verse in all of scripture, which is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It also has one of the passages that I go to most frequently in counseling in 7, 1 to 5 with the judge not and the plank, eye, or the plank in your eye or the log in your eye. It has two of the verses that non-Christians know the best in the Bible. So non-Christians can quote, judge not lest ye be judged. And non-Christians often know the golden rule of 7.12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And our passage that we're looking at has a very simple structure to it. So in 6.25 through the end of chapter 6, 6.34, he's talking about trusting God, instructions on how to trust God. Then 7, 1 to 6, there's instructions how to treat others rightly. And then 7, 7 to 11, instructions on trusting God. And 7, 12, instructions on treating others rightly. Trust God, treat others rightly, trust God, treat others rightly. So the essence of my sermon is that. Trust God and treat others rightly. But Jesus in giving these kind of standard moral imperatives that if you've been around church much, you've heard those things, he, he does something more. It's really interesting as you dig into these passages. It's not just kind of this, hey, do, do this. I was thinking about it if uh, my family was watching How to Train a Dragon. I don't know if you guys have watched that in your families. but So dragon metaphors are in my mind. And uh, if I was asked to go and slay a dragon... That'd be one thing. It's kind of, oh, wow. I know that's what I need to do, but it's kind of overwhelming. But if the same person asked me to go and slay that dragon, gave me, and here's a clue about that dragon. Here's something you need to understand about that dragon. And if you understand this, it makes slaying that dragon all the easier. That's kind of what Jesus does here. He gives us that, that secret, that, that truth, that if we just understand this, then trusting God becomes so much easier. Or if we just understand this, then treating others rightly becomes so much easier. And, and the clue for both, or the secret for both of these imperatives, has to do with rightly understanding character. So if we just rightly understand who our God is, what his character is, then trust will be the natural impulse of us. And if we rightly understand our own character, it will prove indispensable in helping us treat others rightly. So let's dig right in. We have a lot of text before us, and I want to be able to cover it all. I'm actually going to look at the, the two passages on trusting God first. So we're going to look at, you know, it went boom, 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 boom. We're actually going to take these two and do those together. Does that make sense? So seven, or 6, 25 to 34, and then we'll look at 7, 7 to 11. The first instruction about trusting God there in chapter 6 basically says um, we need to, we need to uh, instead, of, instead of worrying about worldly possessions, 
Instead of worrying about material things, we need to trust God to provide those things. It's his job to meet our basic needs. Our job, it says, is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. God, in telling us not not to be anxious and to trust him, understands that there's a basic tendency in our heart to try and do his job for him. So he says, I want you to keep in mind what your job is. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. I was talking to one of the men in our church who works... uh, loosely speaking, in construction. And uh, he's been given a job as a foreman of a, of, of a, of a project. And the project at, at, a, at a broader level is a mess. The, the management over him has not done a real good job of organizing things and putting things in line. But here he is. He has this project that he has to do. And as the foreman, it's important for him to focus on what he's been called to do and completing that task as well as he can. If he stops and starts trying to play upper management and figure out all the different things that could have been done better, he's going to become a lot less efficient at doing his job. So his role is to do his job faithfully and then leave that to the others. It's a little bit like that for what God's saying here. He's saying, look, I am going to take care of your basic needs. Your life, your body, that's my responsibility to care for you. You don't need to worry about those things. Your job is to seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. That means give yourself to to the work of expanding the kingship of Jesus in your own heart, in this world, in the way you live, in your righteousness. That's what you are to give yourself to instead of being preoccupied with all these other things. God tells us, then in order to help us, help us uh, understand this, this point, he says, look to nature. He says, you who want to worry about whether you're going to survive or not, whether you're going to have clothing or not, look at nature. Look at the birds, he says. You don't see them starting a farm plowing and putting the seeds in and then and waiting and watching for it to grow and then harvest. They don't do that. And yet they have all the food they need. Why? He says. Because of God's providential care over all creation. He says, look at the beautiful lily that grows in the field. It, it doesn't last very long. It's fleeting. It's here today, gone tomorrow, thrown in the fire. And yet, it is so beautiful. Not not because it toils and works to be beautiful, but because of God's providential care over all of creation. It's more beautiful than Solomon. Look at the character of God then. This God who takes care of creation. And then think of how you, as his adopted child, are of so much more value than the bird or the flower. God cares for you. And he's in control of all these things. He has this fatherly heart. He knows your needs and he'll meet them. It's cold out right now. I don't know if you figured that out. I have five little kids. And as a father, I have a heart to keep them warm. Right? 
It's, it's my job, in a sense, as a father to make sure that they don't go out half-naked into the exposed cold and die of frostbite or whatever you die of when you're in the cold. And when they come in from the cold and their little toes and fingers are freezing, I like to warm them up and hold them in my arms and keep them warm and get them warm. That's a father's heart for his child. It's a father's responsibility for his child. Now think about that child saying, you don't need to keep me warm. I can figure out how to do it myself. I don't need your coat. I don't need your snow pants. I don't need your boots. I'll figure it out myself. That's kind of what we do to the Father. When we say, I'm going to worry about whether I'll have my basic needs, whether my basic needs will be met, where am I going to get this, where am I going to get that? We're saying, Father, I know you've said you're going to take care of that, but no, that's going to be my job. But if we understand the character of God, if we understand his fatherly heart for those who have trusted Christ, who have become disciples of Christ, he's adopted us into his family and he loves us as his children. And he wants to keep us warm. And that's his responsibility. And we can allow him to do that so we can focus on the charge that he's giving us of seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, when we talk about this, don't misunderstand Jesus as saying, look, um, you don't need, you know, just sit back in your lounge chair and flip channels because you don't need to worry about anything. You know, I'll just kind of sprinkle down some clothing for you or something. That's not what's going on here, because in seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, there are commands that God gives. God commands us that it's good to work, that we should work, that it's good to provide for the needs of our family. Those are right things. But do you see how you go about those things with kind of my first priority is honoring the God, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, and I'm trusting him to provide those things even as I obey him. It's a different mentality than if you're saying, I'm the one who's got to do this, i got to do this. You just come at it with a different heart when your priority and your focus is seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. So that's what he's calling us to do. It's not an excuse for laziness. So God is calling us to be after this one task, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness and seeing his character as a father who loves us and provides for us. Now, I I do want to make one aside on this passage before I move on to the next, because I think it's important Life is more than survival. You see how he says that at the end of verse 25? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Life is more than just getting what I need to survive. There is a really a religious system, though they wouldn't call it a religious system, called scientific materialism it's the idea there is no god matter is all that is and so our job on earth we're born and then we try and survive and then we die and that's all there is so there's nothing more than food for the body and clothes or food for life and clothes for the body but scientific materialism is not only wrong it's flat You see what God calls us to? 
not just trying to keep our body fed, but actually living for His kingdom and His righteousness. We get to be a part, by God's grace, through His work within us, of building the greatest kingdom that ever was and ever will be. A kingdom where there will be love and justice and harmony and righteousness for eternity. We get to be part of that. I lived uh, in Chicago in the 1990s when the Chicago Bulls were a dynasty. And they're the, they go down as, as one of the greatest teams in the history of basketball. Perhaps the greatest team in the history of basketball. And I'll tell you, they had no trouble signing free agents. Everybody, all the basketball players wanted to come play for the Bulls. Because they would get to be a part of playing for this great team that was destined to win the national championship or the world championship. There's a little bit of that here, right? Jesus is saying, look, this is where you forget scientific materialism. Don't just try and survive. You get to be a part of building God's kingdom, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. What a joy. Give ourselves to that and let our heavenly father provide our needs. Well, the second passage on trusting God is in 7, 7 through 11. And it basically is saying, go to God in prayer because he is a father who delights to give good gifts to his children when they ask. Now, in saying this, does it mean that I can ask God for an all-expense-paid vacation to New Zealand and boom he'll give it to me because every good thing he'll give me if I ask for it and that's nice well my children ask me for sweets all the time they want to watch movies all day and they see no need for a punishment when their behavior has been out of line but you'll be happy to know I don't give them sweets and let them watch movies all day and never give them a punishment. Why? Because I love them and I care for them. And I want to give them what's good for them, not what they just think they need. And that's the character of our God. (laughs) Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, Father in heaven? I'm a fallen man. I'm part of Adam's fallen race. And I know these basic things about giving good to my children. God is imminently good. And so he will give us not just good, but what is very best for us. We need to see God as one who is eager to shower out the very best for us as a loving Heavenly Father. Do you see how, again, Jesus is talking about understanding this character of a loving Heavenly Father who is caring for us and knows our needs. And this understanding of God emboldens our prayer life. And I think it emboldens it in a couple ways. One way it's challenged my prayer life, this passage, is... It changes how I pray to God. Because now I'm trying to think, okay, if God knows what's best for me, I don't want to be like my kid and just saying, okay, I want sweets taste good, so that's what I want, God, give me sweets. 
I go to the Bible and think, okay, what has God said I need? Let's think about what he says is good for me. And let's go and ask him for those things because he's anxious to give good things to me when I ask. It also emboldens me to be faithful and persistent in prayer. Because now I know the character of my God. I don't have to just kind of twist God's arm and manipulate him into giving us what we want. If I just ask him enough times, he'll have to give it to me. Or if I just say it the right way. Or if I get enough people praying for me. Or if I... It's not like that. I get to go to my Heavenly Father as His child and say, Father, I'm your child, and I have this request that I want to bring to you, knowing that you're going to give good things as I ask. You're not going to give me a serpent or a stone. You're going to give me good things. So it encourages me to be faithful. Now when it talks about continuing to ask, continuing to seek, continuing to not, that persistence, it's certainly calling to persistence in prayer. But it's the point being made here is not that if you ask for it enough times, God will say, quit your nagging and give it to you. The point is rather, as we go through life, we can be focused on, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. But instead, we should be looking to God and saying, God, will you do this? God, will you do this? God, will you do this? And our natural instinct is going to let that head drift down and stop asking and stop seeking and stop knocking and instead start figuring we've got to handle it all ourselves. So the persistence of keeping asking, knocking, seeking is really a matter of persistence in, in, in the posture that will overflow in prayer. A posture that's looking to God and saying, I can't do this on my own, but I have a Father who cares for me, and I can look to Him. So, in this trusting God section of Jesus' sermon, He says there's, there's going to be two things that are important about trusting God. One is trusting Him to provide your basic needs. And you instead focusing on seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. That shows the trust for God. And he says, the way I want to teach you that is by telling you to look at nature. And seeing God's providential care and then seeing how much more does he care for his children. And he says, the other thing that's important is to be persistent in prayer. Ask, seek, knock, turn to him and depend on him. And he says... Not look to nature this time, but, but look to parents in the real world, just everyday parents and how they how they care for their children. And I am so much more a good father, eager to, eager to give good gifts. Again, understanding that underlying character of a God as a loving heavenly Father. Once we see God that way, it's that secret that makes trusting God so much easier. It's a natural thing. Now, before we move on to the two teachings on how to rightly treat others, I just want to point out that the first one comes at the outset of chapter 7, and then you have 7, 7 through 11, which we just covered, and then you have verse 12. So these two commands on how to treat others rightly sandwich this command to ask, seek, knock. And I don't think that's an accident. Because... As God is calling us, as Jesus is calling us in these these passages to, to treat others rightly, he's saying, look, and even in this, even in this, you need to be looking to me and asking me to provide. You can't even do those things in your own strength. So, 
these two passages, two, two passages on treating others rightly. One of them is the judge not passage of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. The other one's the golden rule passage of chapter 12. Both of them are re- rooted in the same basic principle, basic insight into our character, but applied two different ways. So, the principle behind the judge not passage is what I call the plank eye principle. The plank eye principle. And it's this. It is easy for us to see sin and fault in others. It's difficult for us to see sin and faults in ourselves. Right? And similarly, the golden rule has a principle behind it. I'll call it the golden principle. It's easy for us to see how we want others to treat us. But it's difficult to see how we should treat others. It's easy for us to see how we want others to treat us. But it's difficult for us to see how we should treat others. You see, they both kind of have the same basic principle behind both. We're fallen people. And a result of our fallenness, we are inherently biased toward ourselves. We are inherently biased toward ourselves. That is the assumption behind both principles, the plank eye principle and the golden principle. Now, it's applied in two different ways. So on the one hand, we take this inherent bias towards ourselves and it means we need to be on guard about seeing sin in others because now we know it's going to be very easy for us to see sin in others. Their small sins will seem really big to us. But it's very difficult for us to see sin in ourselves. Even stuff that's really big, we won't even notice it's there. Because this inherent bias toward ourselves. But on the other hand, since we inherently know how to treat ourselves well, we can leverage that to help us know how to better treat others. So applied two different ways, but the same principle. And that's that that secret, that insight that Jesus gives us that I think is so helpful in right living. Just stepping back and realizing we, as fallen humans, have an inherent bias towards ourselves. So now let's spend a little time on each of these two passages. And we'll spend most of it on this judge not passage in verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you be not judged. So commonly used. But what exactly does it mean? There's a lot of different ways, different things we could say it means. So let's just rule one thing out from the get-go. This is, this is definitely not saying that it's wrong to make moral assessments of others. Or even to vocalize those. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, makes moral assessments of others and vocalizes those. Even in our own passage, in verse 6, where he talks about you're going to have to differentiate somebody who's behaving like a pig or a dog versus a true brother and how you treat them, requires moral assessment. Later on, down in verse 15, he'll say there's false teachers out there, and how are you going to know they're false teachers? By making a moral assessment about the fruit that's in their lives and treating them accordingly. Even by the end of his instruction here in verse 5, he is telling us that we will, there'll be a time when we actually need to remove the speck from our brother's eye and help him in that way. 
So if that's not what's being said, then what is being said? I think what Jesus is condemning is elevating ourself to the position of judge. So, Jesus' teaching and the rest of the scriptures make clear that God is the judge. And his standards are what govern us. And so, you and I are alike together under God as judge. And under his standards. Now, as somebody who is under his 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 rule, his judgeship, we who are in Christ know exactly what that kind of judgeship is like. It is just, but for us who have a repentant heart and embrace what Christ did on the cross, he is merciful. He's eager to forgive us. He paid the penalty through his son Jesus so that we could be forgiven and be restored to right relationship. We could be justified. The judge declares us forgiven, not guilty, though we're guilty. So if we see ourselves together under God, it changes how we relate to one another. I want you to look with me. Just uh, flip ahead a little bit into Titus chapter 3. You can find this on page uh, 998 if you're using the Pew Bible. What I'm going to read here in chapter 3 shows how how do we relate to other people, not with a, an element of I'm the judge and I've elevated myself as judge, but when we see ourselves alike together, it changes our attitude. And that's what I think Jesus is getting after here. So Titus chapter 3, remind them to be submit. This is remind the Christians there to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now listen to this. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We're pretty bad people, guilty on all charges. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. You see that? I'm guilty too. Yeah, you're guilty, but I'm guilty too, and I've been forgiven. So, as I relate to you, I don't do it in this kind of judgmental, I'm over you sort of way that says, you've got this wrong, this wrong, and this wrong. But I do it as some, I do it gently, not with quarrelsomeness, but with love. But, when we elevate ourselves to the position of judge, that's when we become fault-finding. Quick to see the errors in others. Now, when we're together under under God as judge, it doesn't mean that the standards He's laid out we don't we can't point to that and say, "Hey, this is something God said not to do." I'm a sinner too. I need His grace, but God has said not to do that. See, there's a tone, a way of interacting of us together. But elevating ourselves to judge 
changes everything. Now, the tricky thing is we're easily self-deceived. So it's easy for us to say, well, I'm not elevating myself to judge. I think God is judge. I'm just pointing out all the ways that people are out of line with what God has said. So Jesus, knowing our hearts, gives a couple tests to help us see our own heart. The first test I call the scale test. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. Here's the test. Would you want God to measure you with the same scales that you use to measure others? A few years back, Karen and I uh, were friends with a family, and, and we saw certain things that about how they were parenting that we didn't necessarily agree with. And I think we had some cockeyed scales. And we were pretty, I particularly, I should say, was, was pretty critical toward this family and how I approached them. And then a few years passed, and through life experiences, we realized they were in a really hard spot right then. And what they needed, yeah, they needed people kind of gently holding their hands and saying, are you thinking about this? But they just needed someone to come alongside them and support them and hold them through that time. Yeah, speaking truth along the way with arms around them. We, I wrote a letter apologizing as I saw this. That harsh, judgmental tone. If you're using that scale, do you want God to use that same scale towards you? The other test he gives, uh, called the ratio test. It comes from this idea of the plank and the speck, or the log and the speck. It's this. Do you often see sin in others, but rarely see it in yourself? Now, of course, I'm wrong sometimes, because in order to be righteous, you've got to be wrong sometimes. But just rarely so. But other people, yeah, very critical spirit. Even when somebody, the people who have spoken into our lives and tried to expose sin, well, they just have a skewed perspective. They don't really get what's going on, so I can dismiss them. The ratio test. And Jesus' warning is strong here. If that spirit, that judgmental spirit persists, or worsens over time, then it actually reveals that our hearts have not been truly converted and we have no expectation except for judgment. So instead, we should take advantage of the plank eye principle, this, this understanding of ourselves naturally skewed to see our, our, our own situation naturally biased towards ourselves. And we should instead say, I am going to focus my, my, my gaze on myself instead of on others. And, the, and Jesus goes on to say, as you do that, as you really look and examine your own heart and continue to do that, that's, it's not just like, hey, i got to get that sin in him, so quick examination, now I can go get him. No, it's, that's your orientation that you're thinking, there's probably logs I'm not even seeing. 
Let me keep doing that. As I do that, then by God's grace, I'm able to see clearly. Have you ever gotten a speck in your eye? It is so annoying. You can't focus or concentrate. You can barely see. And it's just because of a little speck in your eye. And what do you do? You go to your spouse or to somebody else and say, do I have anything in my eye? Can you help me get it out? And it's the loving thing to do, right? They come and help you ever so delicately to get that speck out of your eye. As our perspective is on ourselves and focus on ourselves, trying to adjust for the fact that we're skewed to be biased towards ourselves, it allows us to be somebody who can come alongside a brother and ever so gently and ever so carefully help them remove the speck from their eyes in a loving way that helps them and encourages them. And we need to be a community of people that is open to that. Because if if we're inherently biased towards ourselves, then we need others to help us see sin in us. Because it's harder for me to see see the sin in myself than it is for Karen to see the sin in me, or for Mark to see the sin in me, or Terry, or whoever else it might be, right? And then you get to verse 6. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls. What is Jesus? I remember, like, this at the beginning of this week, preparing for the sermon, getting to verse 6, and going, what is this doing here? What is he talking about? I was lost. But then through my study, I saw Proverbs 9. I'm going to make you turn there too. Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 9. This is on page 533 in the Pew Bible. Remember this context, Jesus is saying, there comes a time when you actually do need to come to your brother and help him get that speck out of his eye. And yet then he goes on about dogs and swine and pearls. Listen to what Proverbs 9, 7 through 9 says. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he'll hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Do you see what Jesus is doing here with the Sermon on the Mount? He's saying there's certain people that will welcome and receive if you're helping them get that speck out of their brother's eye. But there's others that if you throw that, they think you're feeding them. They try and devour it. Oh, it's pearls. Now I'm turning and I'm abusing you. I'm, I'm attacking you. It says there's a certain point where you just say, you know what? I'm not going to bother with that speck right there. You correct a scoffer, you get abuse. Which is interesting that he gives that verse because I think it even, even adds to the idea that Jesus' teaching here is not simply never say anything that could be perceived as judgmental, but really he's saying there is a right way to help a brother get a speck out of his brother's eye because then he's adding and saying there's a time not to do it. So there is, there is an intention where, where Jesus lands at the end is getting a speck out and knowing when to do that and when not to. That's where he lands. There's a, there's a right way, a humble way, a way that's examining yourself that approaches others to help each other grow in Christ. 
Well, the other instruction that Jesus gives in verse 12 on how to treat others rightly is the golden rule. We have it in our head as do as do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is basically stated there in verse 12. It's stated so simply, I don't even think I need to explain it. I'll just illustrate it. When Karen and I were engaged, we got to do that fun thing that married or engaged couples get to do, which is go and register, which means go and say all the things that you want for your new home together. So I was a pastor, Karen was a missionary, we get the whole golden rule thing, right? So we go to, uh, the store was Bed Bath & Beyond, and we start in the corner they tell us to start in, which I think was dishes and silverware or something like that. And of course Karen's saying things like, well James, what do you want? What would you like for our home? And I'm saying things like, Karen, you tell me what you want. And then we're trying to read each other and put each other's needs first, right? We go through, we get about halfway through the store. It takes about three hours. We get, we get back and Karen starts crying. And I'm like, I just gave up everything I wanted in a home to meet Karen's needs and what she wants. Why is she crying? And I say, what's the matter? She says, I hate everything we registered for. So I thought she wanted it, and she thought I wanted it, and we ended up with a bunch of stuff that neither of us wanted, so we had to go back later and redo the whole thing. Okay, so maybe the golden rule doesn't work perfectly every time, but the principle is golden, especially in times when there's the littlest bit of tension or there's a delicate, delicate balance to the relationship. We are so inclined to only think about ourselves. It's so hard to stop and say, let me take that inherent bias towards myself and use that for the other's good. Let me put myself in their shoes. Not and put myself in their shoes so I'd be like, well, I would do this. I would treat myself better if I was in their shoes. No, no, no. But you try and think, if I, with my selfishness, was in their shoes, how would I want to be treated? How would I be feeling? And let's treat them accordingly. Jesus doesn't just tell us to slay the dragon. He gives us the dragon's secret. When it comes to trusting God, if we as a church can just see God as our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, eager to pour good gifts out upon us, then we won't be worried about all the stuff of this world. We can seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And we won't be burdened saying, I got to do it, I got to do it. We can ask, seek, and knock. And when it comes to treating others rightly, this big dragon that's so hard for us, if we can just understand what Jesus says, that we inherently are biased towards ourselves, then we can use that to, instead of pointing out all the sin in others, examine our own hearts, that we can be the kind of people who are helpful in getting specks out. And we can be people who know how to help others and serve others because we think about, how would I want to be treated? Understand these secrets that Jesus gives us and by God's grace, may we be a people who trust him and obey him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage that you've given us. The instructions that Jesus has given us. I pray that you would help us see you as our Heavenly Father who cares for us. 
to allow you to take care of us, to allow you to keep us warm. Pray that we would be people who treat others the right way, knowing our own character and adjusting accordingly. We can only do this with the help of your Spirit. So help us, Lord. We ask, we seek, we knock. Amen.